Welcome to the Long-Term Care Chronicles podcast. Thank you, Lori, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles. And before we start, I'll get you just to tell us a little bit about your group and why it was created. Well, thanks so much for having uh, me. I'm the uh, Vice President of Concerned Friends. I joined the organization two years ago um, after my mother passed away in long-term care. So Concerned Friends, we're a volunteer-based organization. We're a not-for-profit charity. We were formed in 1980. So 40 years ago, there was a group of people that came together that was concerned then about the quality of care in uh, long-term care homes. Um, we've been very successful in, uh, in advocating for uh, changes through the years, and I think some of those should be noted that um, amendments to the uh, Nursing Home Act, which included the Bill of Rights for Residents, uh, mandatory reporting of harm to residents, uh, nursing home financial accountability provisions. Uh, we were instrumental in getting the long-term care inspection reports available to the public. Um, We also were involved in the creation of the Advocacy Center for the Elderly and initiating the Family Council Program, which uh, you know quite well is is, uh, really important across the province. Oh, that's amazing. That's really good of all of those accomplishments that your group has done. And right now your group has put a call to action to the Premier and to the Ministers of Health and Long-Term Care. Would you be able to speak to the five key points that you've brought up about those? Absolutely. And I guess uh, they weren't put out there in any order of priority, Um, but certainly staffing has been... uh, Staffing has been an issue in long-term care long before the pandemic hit us. It was, unfortunately, that's what brought the issue to light. We have uh, 70, over 77,000 adults living in 627 long-term care uh, facilities across the problem, province. This is a very complex um, population in terms of the level of care that they, they are required and really to ensure that their safety, their dignity, their respect, and the individuality of that person is maintained. And so with that, it takes a a staffing complement that can address that. The Time to Care Act, it's interesting that that bill was introduced in 2018 by the NDP, and it took the pandemic to get it pushed forward by the current government. Um, initiating that uh, four hours of um, a minimum of four hours of nursing care. That, while endorsed and has gone through the second reading and will become part of legislation, we need that now. (laughs) But our challenge is, is that we don't have the people. (laughs) So we have a huge uh, recruitment uh, retention issue within this sector. Um, recently, I saw the, the government uh, put out a, a press release on uh, 373 uh, new P- funding for new PSWs, but we need to attract people to the sector to want to work in it. And with that takes a requirement of a, a, pay, a, a, a living wage that is uh, indicative of the services and the support that they're providing and benefits and the ability to have permanent long-term position so that we see that they're not having to move um, from home to home. That might be a choice for some because of their lifestyle and they need to manage home care or whatever, but it should be made available that there are permanent positions. 
one of the things a, a person living in long-term care uh, and depending on their needs, they really get uh, connected to their, their care provider. And so temporary staff coming in and out, is it's not good for anyone. Um, so that in terms of staffing is, I would say is probably the most critical. And it's not just throwing money at it, right? We need a strategy of how we're going to recruit uh, people to this sector. The second piece that, um, well, really two of our um, items speak to the inspection of, of these facilities. Um, there used to be an annual resident quality inspection, and that was a very thorough inspection of all the facilities, and it would happen on an annual basis. In 2019, there was only eight of these conducted. Uh, the ministry was um, shifting resources to uh, follow up on those that they had uh, more complaints on. So in a com complaint base, but then it fell behind. So you didn't have that regular check-in of all the facilities to ensure that they're meeting the, the standards that are set out in regulation. Really, that needs to be put back into place immediately. And those operators that are not meeting the regulatory operation or uh, re regulatory requirements, there needs to be fines and penalties that address that so that they come into compliance. These, um, and you know, I, um, I look at any type of regulated um, organization, at any point, a, minister, a ministerial inspector should be able to go in there and see how, what kind of a job you're doing. So facilities should always be operating. You know, we, we all have bad days and some things will go out of, a, out of norm. <laughs> Um, but a, a trained inspector would know that that's not the normal practice of that facility, that that was just a bad day. So that's uh, one of our points. The other is in um, 2008, there was a, uh, the ministry put together an advisory group and that was, um, that had representatives from residence councils, family councils, uh, long-term care associations, physicians and advocacy groups uh, such as Concerned Friends, and they would meet quarterly to provide input into the um, inspection program and the challenges that, you know, a different perspective of, of um, everyone brought value to that table. Um, when the Ford government took office, they, they disbanded that, uh, that group. So we would like to see that put back in place and actually with a little more teeth to it, with some type of accountability to the Minister of Long-Term Care, so that we're not just talking about the problems, that we're providing solutions to the problems and hold the government accountable to moving forward on that. So we can tell you about all of the deficiencies that we've noted over the years. And that's not to say that there are some great operators out there, like not all, not all long-term care facilities are operating below standards. That's not the case. Um, but certainly this advisory group we feel would add uh, tremendous value to the ministry. Infection control, um, at its worst, we saw what could happen uh, during a pandemic. The, um, one of the first steps is we have a lot of older facilities. And so we still have those three, four person um, beds, shared accommodations, shared washrooms. In any new builds, that's not permitted. 
but obviously that has been grandfathered in over the years, but it has to end somewhere. You cannot control, as we saw, um, the transmission of, of um, infectious diseases when you're sharing accommodations with a cloth curtain that is separating the two beds from a, from a um, not only from an infection control perspective, but from a, a decency, again, firsthand experience, you know, our seniors didn't end up there because they wanted to, right? They needed care, but they also need dignity. And putting someone into a room that is squeezing two beds together, that there's not enough to room to even maneuver around is, is unacceptable. And that, that has to stop. Um, we also talked about an emergency rapid response task force towards more into the pandemic. We saw that um, the hospitals were engaged. Um, none of us saw this coming, right? So as much as we couldn't be prepared for it, we certainly can take the learnings from this and make sure that we have systems in place that should this ever happen again, or even even in, during an influenza system, you need to have a infection control uh, program. Um, so that was another priority. And I'll end with national standards. Um, I'm not sure where we're going with this. <laughs> and there's been a number of calls from different organizations, but it seems that a minimum standard of care for our seniors should be something that not each province decides independently. We should know that if we're going to put our loved one in a care facility in British Columbia or in Nova Scotia or Ontario, that there is a basic understanding that this is the level of care they're going to be provided. Um, this is what you should expect. This is what you should receive. And really when it comes down to the, um, the enforcement. And so if the federal government mandates that, we think that there may be better control over how each province um, responds to, to a, a crisis. So that's our five. <laughs> it, the oh, list could you. go on, but yes, exactly. We stick, stick with five. <laughs> no, no, that's great. No, that's great. And then right now, are you, is your group working with other groups to further these particular points? So for sure. Um, I think that the sector in itself, uh, recognizing that there's an, a lot of voices out there, but with very distinct uh, needs, right? So Ontario Health Coalition has done a tremendous job of pulling the groups together um, in their days of protest, their call to action, um, and certainly keeping the conversation alive. Um, other groups like the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, providing that legal um, support, and certainly the family councils have been uh, you know, you can look at a number of the initiatives and we are coming together with one with one voice. We may all have different perspectives on, um, but certainly we are all fighting hard to, to make change in this, um, in this uh, very important uh, sector. No, that's great. Uh, thank you for that. And as well, going back to your point on, um, for national standards, how will this look from your group standpoint in terms of those basic uh, needs that need to be applied across the, the country, um, how would that look for, for your group? And I'm not sure. We haven't spent, mm -hmm. um, it was a fairly new concept that came in later in our discussion. So 
we haven't spent a lot of time looking at policies of, but we certainly have, again, like going to that advisory, we have lots of um, firsthand knowledge of, of what, what we'd like to see. Um, so would welcome that opportunity to, as that conversation unfolds, to be part of it for sure. No, that's great. And then do you think that society in general just needs to kind of be behind all these changes, especially for national standards, to really support that? Because it doesn't seem like, you know, with the pandemic, what that's kind of what it's revealed is that we put our loved ones in these care homes, but then we don't look at them, so to speak. I think as all of society, we have a responsibility to play in this. Um, you know, again, um, it, it takes a crisis, a family crisis, right? I, um, from a personal level, my father passed away 14 years ago in long-term care. So I saw it, but then you forget about it. <laughs> and then, you know, uh, then two years ago, my mother was in the same uh, facility. And that's what I'm afraid of when the pandemic ends is that we need to keep this fight going. We cannot allow uh, the standard of care to go um, at the current level and it takes people, it's going to take resources and we need to protect that vulnerable society. Yeah, we, we definitely do. Um, and I, I hope that with all the groups, everybody talking that it really does continue that conversation. And I, I'm hopeful to, to believe that it will. So um, the other- more than groups. Like, yes. And I think I found as I was working through my, my, um, my grief um, that you talk to so many individuals that have shared the same um, situation, but we talk to ourselves, right? So um, someone actually had said, you know, we need a support group for those that um, <laughs> afterwards, but we need more than the support. We actually need to make sure that that voice um, is connected to members of parliament um, at a local level because votes matter at the constituency, right? <laughs> so we can have as many powerful groups representing so many different voices, but it really does come down to that individual um, constituency. Okay, thank you for that. And now I know your group does provide advocacy for families in long-term care. What were the main drivers why families reached out to your organization? Um, again, from a personal perspective, we didn't know where to go for these answers. Um, many of the calls that we get um, are related to the pressure that one's feeling to leave the hospital um, and need to get them into a long-term care facility. And then when you're, if you're not on a list already, it's like, how do you select a facility? If you've not been through it, it's, it's overwhelming <laughs> to, to determine where um, your loved one who is in a, a compromised position has to ends up in this facility. So we, um, we, we struggle because we're a volunteer based organization. So it's not a crisis line. We have trained advocates that take a rotation of manning, you know, checking for phone messages, checking email and reaching out often. And we have the resources. Uh, some of them are on our website to provide a family looking for um, help and certainly the regulatory or the regulatory rights um, of what to expect. Often it's just someone to listen to. 
you are so frustrated by by the system and not having the answers that we provide some comfort <laughs> of somebody who understands what you're going through. So um, that that is key. And then what would you say in terms of what does that say about our healthcare system that, you know, in terms of not, I guess, the home care not being su supported very well. And then, of course, the hospital then being overrun. And then, of course, that leads into the whole long term care system. Again, I, I think it's so very complicated um, having navigated that there are so many pieces like the hospital really isn't the place where your loved one needs to stay. Um, and you're assigned a, a caseworker as soon as you're in there trying to find it. It's just, a, um, again, there's no strategy, right? Someone needs to go to hospital, obviously for some medical reason at the time. And then the, the transition between that, and often it was, there wasn't beds available. And I, I know that there's a lot of talk out there about, you know, what is the, and I, we're going to talk about it is what is the future for long-term care? You know, do they need to go to a facility? Can they return to their home with the proper supports? Like not everyone needs to be destined for that one stream of, of care. So yes. And that, so that involves the conversation and the disconnect between the hospital and long-term care facilities. Thank you. And then for now during this pandemic, has the call kind of changed or has it been very similar to what you've just explained before? Similar in that, um, you know, being discharged from the hospital and trying to find a facility. Um, certainly our advocates did see a rise in questions around the visitors restrictions to long term care. Um, but I would say that the Family Council of Ontario did a very good job of keeping um, those um, love or the loved ones, or the family of loved ones, um, informed of what uh, it, it was a changing policy. As as we saw throughout the pandemic, there was many changing policies, so it was very confusing and heart wrenching. Um, knowing that um, because of the staff shortages, the critical uh, role that a family plays in providing that additional. Uh, care to their loved ones, the feeding, the, the um, toileting, the, um, you know, just the basic hygiene requirements and that stimulation of interaction. So, which is not quite the same. Um, we weren't prepared. <laughs> yeah, we definitely weren't. And now your group does the monitoring of the inspection reports. And then the, this report is, as, is set as a yearly resource for families. What has been the trend that you've seen from, you know, from these reports and why or why not that this is, illustrates that long-term care facilities were not prepared for COVID-19? So I think that that is certainly a significant challenge and maybe if we get the advisory group back in place, we can hold the government more accountable. Um, so in 2019, our reviewers, um, there's seven different regions in the province of how it's split up. They reviewed over 2,600 um, inspection reports. And of that only nine, as I mentioned, were, were that full in-depth one. So these are complaints, these are um, inspection, um, re or not reports, critical incidents that they're following up on. The, the top of the list has been for the last couple of years, the uh, facility management, which comes down to the staffing issue, 
critical incident reporting, uh, residents' rights, uh, care plans. So they were, they've been identified. So why have we not taken steps? If we had that many, why are we not taking um, specific action against those facilities that are not complying? And then from an overall strategy, what needs to be in place? And I'm not a firm believer in just throwing more regulatory requirements if you don't have the support behind to make sure that they are adhering to the current set of legislation. So it's a, it's kind of a two-pronged um, approach. The our reviewers are just waiting or compiling now the 2020 report. Um, we think it will probably look quite a bit different uh, based on, um, you know, from March to December, we've been dealing with COVID. Certainly infection control programs has been identified as one of the um, incidents that would be, um, you know, certainly reported and we'd see over a number of times. Thank you. And I know that your group um, does support the re-imaging of long-term residential care team by the York University. Um, is this provided to families that you endorse this type of change moving forward? So um, certainly I know when the paper was done, um, Concerned Friends, I, it was before my time with the organization, so I'm not um, that in uh, closely connected to it. I certainly know that Dr. Pat Armstrong, who authored the um, report, she's a director with Care Watch, and Care Watch is, is really uh, concentrated on how do we provide those supports to keep, uh, to keep our seniors in the community. So to my point earlier about discharging from the hospital, we really need to look, um, move away from that institutionalized approach um, to that. And I think that there are a number of, um, there's a, a, a role model in Ontario that when we were dealing with people with developmental um, disabilities of how we looked at those community housing of, of uh, providing support. Um, so there's, there's a lot of models. Again, it goes back to, we just can't be going here and there with, there has to be an overall strategy of how, because we have an aging population. And the reason I got involved in this is that I'm hoping, well, I'm not certain that it'll be for my time, but that our younger generation gets involved in the conversation of protecting of what is going to be required for um, our seniors going forward. No, you bring up a very valid point as to what's happening uh, in society. Uh, but the other thing that I wanted to, to bring forward as well is I know that your group has a, a resource of a checklist for families uh, when looking at options for long-term long care. Um, and you detail you know, a, a report, an issue to the ministry with the 33 questions that need to be um, answered before um, a family actually should really consider that particular um, uh, facility. How important it is for this and how did your group detail what needed to be done as a checklist for families? It's extremely important. And I would say that that checklist came about through our reviewers committee of looking at where the deficiencies were within the facilities to make sure that these certain things were in place. It's somewhat ironic that organizations like Concerned Friends, and I believe the one that's currently on the ministry's website is the 
um, residence council, one that they put together, that the ministry themselves did not put <laughs> together a checklist, but that's fine. Um, we've done it and we are looking at, um, at updating it. I know that uh, last year when there was um, changes about the lens uh, from that, you know, a document <laughs> with government changing things quickly, uh, we don't always have the resources to uh, reflect it in the document. So when we refer to things like I think critical care um, assessment, they change names or terminology. So but basically the, the items that they're looking for haven't. <laughs> so if, if anything, we probably are going to be adding um, potentially some new things to question during, uh, during uh, um, trying to select a facility. And I think it will be, you know, I know that one thing that our advocates do when someone's looking for that uh, long-term care facility, the ministry does put the inspection reports up there and that is critical to go back and, and review those um, to see what are the incidents um, and the residence quality inspection report would be available too. I think the last, most of them are 2017, uh, or I should say some of them are 2017 when you go to a specific home. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't think that that would be so far uh, away, but I guess with the lack of inspections, this is what uh, you know ends up happening. And I know that um, right now with other groups that you are associated with, how do you support each other to further the cause? So I, I, be I personally believe that we have a, a role as we come through this to, to do things a lot more collectively. And our board has talked about uh, reaching out to those organizations and, and look at a coordinated strategy. We've done a good job, I'd say, in a crisis, um, but in terms of strategy, so the Ontario Health Coalition, uh, Family Council Ontario, everyone brings together a different perspective of, uh, in the Residence Council, certainly the Advocacy Centre, uh, Care Watch, Seniors for Social Action Ontario. It will be a big conversation that we, we ourselves as, as groups need to um, band together and look at strategies. I don't think that there's any, there's no one ownership to this. Uh, it will take many people and different um, perspectives to, to um, help guide the government in a, in a um, solution to, to this overwhelming um, challenge we have ahead. I couldn't agree with you more. And then right now, what is your group currently working on to support families during this time? So as I mentioned, uh, we are volunteer led. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so I'd say the one thing that we have focused on would be the making sure that we have the phone um, covered so that if someone does call in or leave or sends us an email that we're able to provide that support. And I know I didn't uh, put this in our pre, um, preset questions, but you mentioned in terms of this advisory council, do you think that that would be a good fit for the seniors advocate uh, bill that, you know, once if that does get passed into law, that this would be a good fit for that, um, for the senior, for the Ontario seniors advocate role? Well, I think that as we bring those groups yeah. together, I think we'll find where our strengths are and, you know, we'll see different groups that take on um, this perspective, you know, if, if we've been very strong in the inspection oversight, maybe that's what Concerned Friends um, concentrates on, but come back as a table because it isn't, 
it isn't just a singular, it, it does overlap, but it's certainly, um, you got to know what, <laughs> what you're good at. <laughs> Absolutely. I couldn't uh, agree. And now, can you just let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you and how they can, or how can they be involved with your organization? So, uh, so there's two, two ways. Certainly, we are always looking for new volunteers. And if they go to our website, uh, concernedfriends.ca, uh, we do have a button that's get involved. Um, and there's a volunteer application form. But even aside from getting involved with our organization, I can't stress enough of how we we continue to keep this conversation going. We will get through this pandemic. Um, there's no doubt, um, but we cannot lose sight of, of the tragedy and the loss that has occurred uh, during that time and protection to make sure that we don't have that happen again. No, thank you for that. And I'll make sure that in the show notes that your website and uh, where the link for people can okay. be able to volunteer and get in, involved with your organization um, to make sure that that is available. But I just wanted to thank you as well, Lori, for coming on to the Long-Term Care Chronicles and speaking to um, what your group is doing during this time and really appreciate that you, you know, you have the time to come on and speak to us. Well, thank, thank you for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much.